couple more things. In the back, we have some water and bread and pumpkin bagels. So if you want to take some home, clear out. That's what it's there for. That was what, that's all we had left over from Thursday. But whatever we can share, uh, it, it's back there for you. And also, it's not on our bulletin, and I wasn't notified until uh, now to mention that also um, Debbie Finney had knee surgeries. And uh, she's doing well. My daughter just talked to Rick a minute ago, and he said that she's doing well. So as we get ready to go into the Word, I want to pray for her too, okay? And pray for them. So, Father, thank you again for Jesus. And it's all about Him. And we now lift up our sister Debbie before you, and we pray, Father, that the work that was done upon her knees, that... um, the healing will take place, that it will uh, be so much stronger and pain-free than what they were before because we know that folks don't like to go through that. And I'm also lifting up my brother Dave Ferguson back here who's with us today. Oh, Dave, he's always standing at the door and greeting people and loving on them. And uh, he had hip surgery, and he's out out today with us to be here, Father. So these these warriors, uh, we just want to lift them up before you. We lift Debbie and... And Dave, up right now, pray that you will continue the healing and the work that was done. We pray that your hands was with those who took care of them throughout. And we pray that they will be better than ever to be able to serve you, Father. And we we praise you and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Numbers chapter 22. If you've got your word and want to follow along. And also, I'm having to graduate to my higher glasses to really read this pretty easy. And if you see me on and off, it's because when I look out, you're not as clear now. I was sacrificing clarity on the page for clarity of faces as I talked, but I was starting to get a little bit to where it was hard to catch where I'm supposed to be. So I'm going to give up. I'm going to, I'm going to graduate to the higher grade, and I'm just going to see blurry smiley faces out here. Uh, Numbers 22, if you're there. This is an old, old story. You know, this has been in the Bible a long time. This story's been in the Bible for, uh, you know, close to 4,500 years. Uh, Just as true today as it was then, we're going to find out a lot of things that apply to you and I in our life that applied right here. This is a story of Balaam. Everybody knows a little bit about Balaam, right? Especially about the donkey that talked. You know, this is the time. I, I refer back to this about being a teacher. That if God could use a donkey to teach Balaam, he can use me too. And he can use you. We're supposed to all go out and to teach everyone about the word of God. And if he can use a donkey, he can use me. So, this place that he was at. At this time, the children of Israel has are getting ready to cross over into that land, and they're camped out in the valley of Moab. Now, Moab, the people of Moab, they're actually on top of these hills because the Amorites had had a battle against them and run them up there. They defeated them. They were stronger than them, so they're kind of hiding out. Well, God is starting to bless Israel now to get ready for the promised land. And what they did was, was gave them a victory over this strong people to encourage them that he was with them and that you're going to do what I told you to do. But what that also did was put fear into the hearts of a man named Balak who's king over the Moabites because Balak had been defeated by these guys and now he sees this huge group of people camped out there to defeated the people that defeated him and he's like how can we ever stand against them if they so easily wiped them out so what does he do instead of doing a right thing he turns to a wrong way to solve his problems he's going to turn to a man named Balaam who is the son of Beor who comes from a city called Pethor And as we get through all of this, the name of the city Pethor actually says a lot of things about it. Because Pethor means soothsayer. So this city in Mesopotamia 
is the head place of a cult. It is the area of darkness. This is where all of the worldly ancient darkness had gathered together to teach people to be sorcerers and wizards and all of these different things and soothsayers. Beor was very famous, Balaam's father. He was one of the most famous of them. His name actually means one who puts on fire. So I don't know exactly what all he did with his occult skills, but that was a part of it. His son, Balaam, is now, in our terms, the rock star of sorcerers. He is the one whose name is at the top of the list. He's like the Beatles of the 60s, okay? He is it. And so, Balak says, there's no way that we can defeat Israel, but if I bring in the guy who is the rock star of the occult world, I can pay him to put spells on them and to do something like that so that then I can override them. And so he sends for him. He sends messengers out there if you're in Numbers chapter 22. He sends messengers and says, won't you come back and curse these people because they are as many as you've ever seen. They are like oxen who would go across the field and lick up all the grass. There would be nothing left. He's going to destroy us. And see, his fear caused him to not understand what was really right. Fear motivates you to do things that you shouldn't do. Because God, in the previous chapters, had already told Moses, don't harm those people of Moab because they're your cousins. You're going to go around them. There was no danger, but fear was motivating Balak to do something then that he shouldn't do that wasn't even in the picture, but he imagined it. And so he sends for him. And down there in verse 8 of Numbers 22, Balaam tells the messengers that he sent. He said, to spend the night while I consult the Lord. And we're in Numbers 22, if you want to, uh, uh, for those who are just coming in. Numbers 22, Balaam, he says, spend the night. There's a lot of folks that think Balaam being that rock star of sorcerers, he wasn't a Christian. But he's changed. See, the word hasn't got out yet. They didn't have Facebook to be able to say, Hey, (laughs) I just became a Christian, everybody. No, the word was still out. The reputation that everybody knew was that he was the rock star of sorcerers. But evidently, he has been converted to God. And why is that? Because look at verse 8. You guys stay here while I consult with the Lord. Verse 9 tells us that God spoke with Balaam, asking him who these men are. He carries out a conversation with them. Things are changing, aren't they? Look at verse 18, if you're in Numbers 22. Go down there. This this is a second time, because the first time he's going to tell them, no, I'm not going back with you. God said, I'm not going. So they go back and they tell Balak. He said, no. Balak says, go write him a blank check. Double the offer. Give him whatever you want to out of my palace. If not, we're going to be destroyed. So they go back a second time. In verse 18, he says, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do more or less than what he tells me to do. Now, therefore, please, if you want to stay here tonight, I'll go talk to him, but I'm only going to do what he tells me to do. And that tells me that this is a man who has found the Lord. That he has changed. It kind of reminds me of a New Testament version of that with Acts. When we have Simon the sorcerer. You remember when Philip in Acts 8. After he went uh, with the chariot and stuff. Before that he's there talking. And Simon the sorcerer is there. And he's converted and he follows him around. And he sees what happens. And the apostles come and lay hands on people. And gifts are given. And... Simon sees that and he goes to Peter and he says, I want to buy that. You see, he's a sorcerer and now he's seeing how people can be changed and influenced. And he says, I want to buy this gift that you have. And Peter tells him, he says, pray to God for what you're asking for because you don't have part or lot in any of this. 
you're bound in the bowels of iniquity with the intentions of your heart and what you really want to use this for. Basically, he's wanting to go back into his old way of life, isn't he? Simon was converted and baptized, but he wanted to go back into an old walk of life. This is the temptation that's coming upon Balaam as well. The rock star. Everybody calls fame, power, money, word, reputation. He gave his life to God, but now money is talking. We're doubling the offer. We want you to come curse him because Balak's messengers tell him, we know that those whom you curse are cursed and who you bless are blessed. You have that reputation. People know it. So we are calling you with an open check to do this. And just like you and I sometimes, power, fame, money, temptations lure us back into things that we have tried to get ourselves out of. We've always got to be watchful because there's always that temptation to do that that's being thrown out there to us. That's the first lesson learned is a reminder that that can creep it back in to our lives. Now, Balaam is tempted to reject everything that God is now trying to tell him to stay here and do. Look, but look at verse 18, if you're there. Though Balak were to give me his house full of gold and silver, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God. Boy, he's trying to hang tough, but they're throwing some stuff out there at him. There's now going to be, for the second part of this, three types of will of God. Did you know that there's three types of the will of God as we go through here? First of all, we're going to see the directive will of God. You see that there in verse 12. He said, you will not go with them. You will not curse the people, for I have blessed them. So that's the directive will of God. And to you and I, that's kind of like the things that he tells us. Thou shall not steal, thou shall not kill. Don't go after the works of the flesh, but be after the works of the Spirit. So that's our directive will that we have in the Word of God for us. There's a directive will, but you know what? There's also another will that happens, isn't it? Our freedom of choice. So God does not force people and break their arms to do what He said to do in that directive will. He gives you also a choice. He tells you, but you are a free moral agent. You have a choice in the matter. And that's called the permissive will of God. There are things that he allows to happen because of us and decisions that we make. So, verse 21 is an example of that if you've still got your Bibles there. In verse 21, Balaam rose up the next morning. He saddled his donkey and he went with the princes of Moab. But then... Look at verse 22. God's anger was aroused because he went. I thought a minute ago, if you look in verse 19 and 20 there, God says, well, if they, if they call and they come at you, I guess you can go ahead and go. But now when he saddles the donkey and goes, it says God's anger's kindled. Why? Because he's, you chose to go. He knew his heart. This is a second time now. That these people have come, so it's a second. I already told you the first time, you're not going to go. I've blessed them and not cursed them. You're asking me again. It's driving you crazy. The temptation is driving you crazy. So you know what? That's your choice. I can't stop you. And so it says he went, but when he does, look at what you have to pay. There's a price when... We go past that and we get into the permissive will. God's anger was aroused. Our desire now has went against His directive will. Then we see that there's a penalty that's usually given for doing our will that's in opposition to the directive will of God. Look, look there again. It says that even though you are going, you will not be able to curse them. I'm going to let you do what you want to do. But the plan that I have for a Savior to come through Israel is not going to be hindered by what you do. I have an overriding will that will not allow you to curse this people. What happened with 
Moses. They were trying to get rid of all of the babies so that there would be no lineage of Christ to come. But God's overriding will put that baby in a basket in the bulrushes and he ended up in Pharaoh's house. There's an overriding will of God that his plan has to go on. So that's the three types of will that's going on in this. You're making the choice to go, but I'm not going to let you curse them because I've blessed them. And I told you that in the first place in the directive will of God. Now, so he, he's going ahead and he's going to go. He's not going to be able to curse them, but he still wants to go because he wants to pick up that check. It, it's too much for him. And as he goes, his donkey starts acting up. God's mad. God's anger's been kindled there in verse 22. And the first time, it's in the way as they're going. And the donkey can see the angel of the Lord. But Balaam can't. And that donkey starts walking all the way to the outside into a field to get away from him. Balaam doesn't want to do that. So it says that he strikes the donkey. And after it's got around him, he gets back into the way that he's supposed to be. The second time, It gets a little narrower. This time it's between a couple of vineyards. There's a wall on each side. And it's it's just wide enough that if that donkey squeezes against the wall, he can get by the angel of the Lord. And he does. And he smashes Balaam's foot against the wall as he goes through there. And he gets mad and he strikes the donkey again. And it gets back into the way. The third time... The channel gets so narrow, it says, that you can't cross to the right or the left. So you know what that donkey does? He flops down. (laughs) Flops down right on on Balaam. This time it says that his anger was really mad. This time it doesn't say that he just struck him. It says he picked up his staff and he started striking the animal. You know what happened? That donkey started talking to him. Donkey said, why are you striking me like this? You have had me since I was a little colt, haven't you? Have I ever done anything like this to you? Have I ever acted up? There's a reason behind it. Now, I don't know about you, but if a donkey had started talking to me, I'd have probably passed out. Somebody's going to have to be, you know, waving the towel there and, and getting me back up. Balaam, though, coming out of his background as the rock star of sorcerers, evidently he's used to that because he carries on the conversation like it's normal, doesn't he? I mean, he just starts talking back to him. He says, well, it's because you've mocked me in this. What? Yeah, you mocked me. You make it look like I have no control over you, and I got mad, and I'm putting you back in that. And he said... I not only beat you with my staff, but if I had a sword in my hand, I'd draw it out right now. And about that time, the Lord opened his eyes. And you know what he saw? He saw that angel of the Lord that was there, that that donkey had been seeing all the time and trying to protect him from. And it says when he saw that, he bowed down and he fell flat on his face before him. And he said... Oh my, I didn't know that you stood in the way. He said, your donkey did what he was doing because he saw me and he saved you a couple of times. I had my sword drawn back to get ready to really give a whack at you. And he said, that's why it acted that way. And he said, I didn't know that what I was doing was causing that much problem between you and I. So I'll head back. And he was told, no, go ahead. I'm going to to make a different plan out of this, but go ahead. But I want to ask you something. Here's lesson number two from this. God usually tries to tell us when we're going outside of his directive will, doesn't he? When we start going into that permissive will, into what I want to do instead of what I know I should do. And the first time, it might be a, a light thump to where the donkey only has to go into the field a little bit. We keep on going, we don't recognize the sign that he's trying to get our attention. So the next time we get our foot crushed into the wall and it's getting a little tighter on the discipline that we're getting and we get thumped a little harder. Most time we keep on going, don't we? 
doing what we want to do and we pay no attention. We don't think of that as a warning or as something that we should take heed to. The third time, the donkey has to flop right down and almost break my leg and then my eyes might get opened to where I see what's really going on. Most of the time, I don't want to take the time to realize that that's why I'm getting thumped. But I'm going to ask you as a lesson from this to think about Balaam from now on that when you're getting thumped a little bit, to take an examination of myself, to make sure that I'm in the directive will of God instead of my will and going outside of that. That's lesson number two from this. Now, we keep on going. Verse 34. He told the angel of the Lord, I sinned. I didn't know that you stood in the way against me. He didn't really recognize, but now he does. He's told to go ahead, get up, keep going. Only again, he's told, you're going to want to curse him to get that money, but you're only going to be able to say what I tell you to say. So then, the words that you're going to speak is it. So Balaam arrives. Balak chews him out for not coming a little quicker than what he did. He said, I've sent people, I've sent stuff. And he goes, hey, I'm here though now, right? So let's get things set up. And he evidently told him what he wanted set up because the next day, Balak takes him up to the high places, the first one's the hill of Baal, where they worshipped their foreign gods. And he took him there to overlook the entire valley of Moab to be able to see the children of Israel encamped down there. And Balaam tells him, build seven altars. And evidently, they brought a whole herd because he said, put seven oxen and seven rams on these seven altars. And when they offer that up, he's going to get ready to go get some divination going. You already know he's out of fellowship that Balaam is. We talked about how at first he was saying, I can't go beyond the word of the Lord my God. Seven altars shows that he's out of line. You know why? Because there was only one cross that Jesus Christ died on. And every altar that we see, there was one altar. For the entire tabernacle and then the temple, there was one brazen altar that represented the one Christ that was sacrificed. Seven is numerous gods that you're trying to appease. So he's already going back into this old walk of life still, even after being warned all of these times. The Christ died on one cross, and there is one altar leading up to that cross all the way throughout the children of Israel. So, he takes him up there, and they do that, and he goes to try to now, he says, you guys wait here, and I'm going to go see what the word of the Lord is to me to be able to bring back and see if I can get a cursing upon that. It didn't happen. God overriding will caused a blessing to come out. Now, if you turn to Numbers 23 in our next chapter, God met him there in verse 4, and he told him what he's going to say. And then in verse 7, he says this. He takes up this oracle, Balaam does, and says to Balak, the king of Moab, you brought me here from Aram, from the mountains to the east. He said, come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. Stop for a minute. I want to put a little parenthesis here for you. As you study throughout the rest of your life the Word of God, and you're in the Old Testament, and you see it talk about Jacob and Israel. Jacob is Israel or Jacob before conversion. It's the carnal man. Israel is the sanctified one. So whenever he talks about Jacob and Israel together... He's talking about whether he's in his carnal side or whether he's in his regenerated side after faith. That's the difference. Israel is the regenerative. Jacob is still his carnal side. And he says, You've asked me to curse Jacob and denounce Israel. How, though, in verse 8, shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce who God has not denounced? From the top of these rocks I see him down there. From the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone. 
not reckoning itself among the nations. And we're still that. We're a peculiar people. We've been called out of the world into the kingdom. And we don't reckon ourselves as the rest of the folks do. Who can count the dust of Jacob or their descendants? Who could even number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of righteousness and my end to be like theirs. Balak said to Balaam, What have you done? You've just blessed them instead of cursed them. I brought you here. I've paid you to curse this people. And you just gave a blessing to them. Look at verse 12. I must take heed to speak what the word of God puts in my mouth. If we could all just do that, you know it. But here again is that overriding will of God. I, I tried to go there. I tried to offer up all this stuff and get something. But he's not letting me. What he gave me was this blessing for you. Balak is upset. He's furious at this blessing. But I'm going to give him credit for something. He's got a motto, old Balak does. And that motto is, if at first you don't succeed, try Try again. And so he doesn't stop there. He takes them to another mountain, Pisgah. They get over there. Same song and dance. I told you they brought a herd. They're going to set up another seven altars with another seven oxen and another seven ram. And they're going to get there. Here's life lesson number three for us, though, out of this. You know what Balak was thinking? A change of scenery might get me a different answer. How many times are we told, if I just lived in a different city, if I just had a different, you fill in the blank, school, job, house, place, love, whatever, if I just get rid of where I'm at, and get something new, it's going to handle my situation. It's going to handle my problem, and I'm going to get a different answer. But this is teaching me, I don't need a change of scenery, I need a change of heart. Because what happens is, is wherever I go, if I don't change who I am, the same thing is going to start happening to me, to whether I'm in Indianapolis, Paragon, Florida, or wherever I'm at. If I am the problem, and I don't change who I am, then the environment doesn't change me. I'm going to change my environment, and in a few months, I guarantee you'll be just as miserable in the next job, in the next school, in the next state, in the next love as you were in the first one, because I haven't changed myself. I thought that the scenery is what needed to be changed. He's not got his eyes open yet. In a minute, he's going to get his eyes open. But right now, this is what they're thinking. We're going to change the scenery. But what I need is to change a heart. That's a life lesson for me here. So again, he builds these seven altars and he offers up these seven different ox and the seven different rams. And Balaam says, you guys stay here by these altars again. Stay there. And I'm going to go back and see if I can get a cursing again for you and bring it back to you because Balak is getting a little anxious here think about it he's sent two different contingents he's wrote a blank check to get him here they've already now went up a mountain with all of this gear did all of that and got a blessing they came down a mountain went up another mountain they're doing this is a lot of time effort and money that's going on here I need a cursing not a blessing Look at verse 18, if you're there in 23, chapter 23. Balaam again takes up this oracle back to Balak, and he says, Hey, Balak, rise up, and then listen and take heart, you son of Zippor. God is not a man, and I say amen, thank God. He is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Didn't he say something, and will he not do it? If he has spoken it, will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command from him to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. There's something. You're never more powerful than God. 
And even the spirits of darkness are not more powerful than God. So keep that in mind wherever you go. He says, I cannot reverse it. Here's the rock star, and I don't have no power in this. Verse 21, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob. Here we go again with this Jacob and Israel. And we're talking about now sins. He's talking about iniquity. I, the vision I got from God is, is that there's no iniquity in Jacob. Nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. And I think, why? Everything I read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, they're grumbling. They're complaining. They're never happy with God and what He is providing for them. I told you that your shoes will never wear out. I told you that your dress will never wear out. I told you that you will not have one miscarriage. Can you imagine that in a time of ancient with no hospitals and no doctors that there was not one miscarriage? You will get all of these things. You will get water out of a rock. You will get manna from heaven. But they complained and they complained. And when he goes to curse them, the message he gets back from God is, I don't see any iniquity in Jacob. And I don't see any wickedness in Israel. And I say, how? Because all I read of is that stuff. We're going to learn how in a minute. He keeps going. Look. A people. There's no sorcery I can do. He, God's brought them out of Egypt, verse 22. He's gave them strength like an ox. I cannot do no sorcery against Jacob, the carnal man, nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and Israel, look what God has done. You see, it's not about us and what we've done. You've been saved by faith through grace. By grace through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God. So when he looks down there, he's saying, I don't see iniquity and sin. I see what great things God is doing for these people. Look, this people rises up, verse 24, like a lioness. It lifts itself up like a lion. It will not lie down. It will devour its prey and drink the blood of the slain. And Balak said, to Balaam, stop, don't curse or bless them at all, stop, just stop, all you're doing is blessing them. Balaam says, look at verse 26, didn't I tell you in the beginning, (laughs) I told you from the start, I can only do what God tells me to say, and that's what I've done. So now, you talk about getting frosted, Balak is really hot now, but again, that spirit of not giving up, he's going to go on the last mountain of Peor. And we know that Balaam is really trying because if you look at verse 23, it said that there's no sorcery or divination. He was trying with all of his heart to get that check. But God wasn't allowing him to do it. The overriding will of God was carrying on because the Savior is going to come through those people and that's why they're blessed. Now, chapter 23, verse 27, he's still doing this change of scenery thing. We're going to go to Peor. That God's not going to change his mind again. Balaam already told him. He's not a man that he can change his mind and not do what he's already said he's going to do. So we open up chapter 24, and this is where it really starts to get good, okay? Here's where we start to get some answers as to what's going on. It says there in verse 1 that when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go this time like the other times to seek to use sorcery. But he set his face towards the wilderness where they're at. He's starting to learn his lesson. You know, what was it that, that the angel of the Lord told uh, Paul when he was thrown from his horse and the bright light blinded him? He said, it's hard to kick against the pricks. And that's what this is. He's finally learning that you can't battle God. You're going to lose. And he's starting to realize that. So this time he doesn't go to use divination. This time... It says he just sets his eyes toward the wilderness, toward where they're camped to see what he can see. Look at verse 2, what he saw. He saw Israel encamped in his tents according to their tribes. And when he saw that, it says that the spirit 
of the Lord came upon him. I want to know what he saw. I want to know what he saw that caused the Spirit of the Lord to come on him when he changed his attitude and he looked out. Look at verse 3. He comes back with this oracle. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, an utterance of a man whose eyes have now been opened. And he's going to try to explain something here, but it was so wonderful, he can't explain it. Look how he talks all over himself, trying to explain it. The utterance of him whose eyes are open, who has heard the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, and he now falls down with his eyes wide open. In other words, he says, I've seen a vision even though my eyes were open. It's not what I actually saw. I saw something else, but my eyes are open. I can't explain what I'm seeing here. Verse 5, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, and your dwellings, O Israel. You're like valleys that stretch out and gardens by the riverside and aloes planted by God, like cedars beside the waters. He is going to pour out of his buckets and bless them. His seed will be many. Look what he, one of the things he saw. Verse 7, his king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. What did he see in those tents and those dwellings that now has him talking about a king and a kingdom that will be greater than any kingdom that they know of? And he mentions that one by name. God's going to bring him out of Egypt with strength. He's going to bring him like a lion. He's going to... This kingdom, and this goes for today, by the way, this kingdom that he's going to bring up, God loves so much that those who bless that kingdom will be blessed and, bless, and who curse those people will themselves be cursed. And you go through history and watch whoever has cursed Israel or God's Israel of the church ends up cursed themselves. And whoever blesses and magnifies that, becomes a great nation. It always happens. So therefore, he puts this blessing on them again. And look at verse 13. Well, let's, let's start with verse 10. Balak's anger was so aroused that he struck his hands together. He starts banging them. And he says, stop again. And he says, I called you to curse the enemies. And look, this third time you've blessed them again. Three times. Flee from my face. Flee from this place before I do something to you. Balaam says to him, did I not tell you when this whole thing started that I can only bless if the Lord says bless and I can only curse, but I can only do what he tells me to do. And that's what I'm going to speak. He is so mad, though, that he's brought this guy here and doing all of this, and all he's getting is a blessing for his enemy instead of a cursing. Balaam doesn't know it yet. Balaam's going to die a, a cruel death because even though he cannot curse him, he still wanted that money so bad he's going to tell him how to get, get to the children later, and he's going to die in battle for that. But again, he hasn't realized... Balak's going to tell him here, I meant to honor you, but God has kept you from that, from the honor and the money that I was going to give you. And he hadn't learned that there is nothing that man can give you with honor, glory, money, or anything that's worth more than what God gives to you. He said, what is it worth if you would gain everything in this world but lose your own soul? There's nothing that Balak can offer Balaam in exchange for that. So... Verse, chapter 24, verse 15, he says, My eyes had been opened. And he gives him another glimpse into what's going to happen in the future. How that a star is going to come out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. And he's telling all these prophetic things. What did he see when he stood on that mountain and his eyes was open and he looked out across there and saw Israel in their tents encamped the way they were and he started blessing them and he couldn't even tell what it was he couldn't explain it this is a proverbs 25 2 moment when something doesn't make sense you always dig a little deeper because it says there it's the glory of god to conceal some things 
But it's the glory of kings to search those things out. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to search this as we get ready to wrap this up. And I hope that when you finish, you're going to say, wow, like I did when I received this message to be able to give. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 1 if you've got your Bibles. Numbers chapter 1, the first chapter of this book. It begins to explain. When numbers start, we're going to take a census. And God says, take a census. Don't count the Levites because they're my people. They're going to be camped in the middle of of the thing. The the tabernacle is going to be set. The Levites are going to camp around that tabernacle. And the rest of you are going to be camped around that to protect it. And he says, so we're not going to number them. But I want you to go throughout the rest of the 12 tribes. We're going to take a census. We're going to number the fighting men of war age 20 and up. Through age 50. Those were the men of war. We're going to see how many we have. So he starts numbering them there, it says. You get down to verse 46, it tells us in chapter 1 that the number of them was 603,550 fighting men from those 12 tribes. Verse 50 tells you about the Levites in the tabernacle, and then we go to chapter 2. Now we get the other tribes starting to come in. They're going to all, it says be pitching their tents. Isn't that what he looked out from the top of the mountain and saw was how they were pitched and encamped in their tents across the valley? God gave him instructions on how to do that. He said, each of the rest of the tribes around that tabernacle are going to be pitched by their standards or their flags. Each tribe had a symbol of who they were true. Just like Judah, Christ was out of that lineage and he was what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah's standard, their flag, was a lion. There was a flag for each one of the tribes. And and God says, you're going to pitch your tents by your standards and your flags in your groups. Verse 3, we start with the east. On the east side is Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And he says, you're going to pitch towards the rising of the sun on the east. And verse 9 says that there was 186,400 men on the east side of the tabernacle. And as we go through this, just think. If that's just the fighting men, there's also older men. There's the women who, if you think that each one of them at 20 to 50 probably had a wife. So you got to double those numbers as well. And then their children get magnified. So it, it stretches it out even more. But we're just talking about the fighting men, 186,000 to the east. Verse 10, to the south, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad is stretched out to the south. And it says that their numbers in verse 10 is 151,450. Verse 17, in the middle is the Levites who camp around it in a square. Verse 18, on the west side towards the setting of the sun, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, the number of them came to be in verse 18 of 108,100. They are the smallest. Judah, the opposite side to the east, is the largest at 186,400. 108,000 is the smallest. You can see that's 80,000 folks difference of just fighting men, let alone the women, the children, how much it magnifies it out. And then lastly, verse 25, the north side. The tabernacle is Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Those were 157,600. That gives you the grand total of 603,550. And you can look that the north and the south are pretty similar. One's 151,000. One's 157. They're in between the two larger ones. Now, Numbers 24.2 said that he stood there and he looked out as they were encamped the way God told him here. Here's where we start uncovering it. Next slide shows the Levites and the directions that we were. You can see how that, that starts out. As Balaam saw it. But then, as we start filling the tribes in, in the next slide of Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, you see it to the bottom, and you see their standards the lion, the man, the ox, and the eagle. When you go to Revelation, you see these on the faces of some of those beasts, and that's what they represent. But you can see how God didn't tell them to dwell in the southwest, the northwest, the southeast, the northeast. He said north, south, east, and west. 
You're going to be by your tribes. And I still don't see what shocked Balaam as he stood on the top of that hill until we start extrapolating those numbers out and we take a topside view of what it looks like from a mountaintop instead of close in. And give me the next slide. There you go. From the mountaintop that Balaam started looking at, and he looked down across there. The east was to the bottom of him. It's the largest tribe, and when you double those out, the way God designed in Numbers chapter 1 for them to be encamped, His directive will for how you're going to pitch your tent or live your life, My directive will is for you to do this. No questions asked. You don't understand it. They had no idea what they were doing. But when God told them to camp according to their standards in this way, He already did the math and knew that every time they pitched camp, when God looked down from heaven, He saw the cross of Christ. I don't know about you, but I just say, wow. Now I understand why on the first two mountains, Balaam says, I don't see any iniquity in Jacob. I don't see any wickedness in Israel. Why? Because when God looked down, if you're doing what you're supposed to do in the directive will of God, He does not see Jacob or Israel. He sees the cross of Christ. And the Bible says that my life is hid in Him. That's why you couldn't curse him. Because if you do my directive, well, if you camp the way I tell you to do, I look down and I see my son in your life. I don't see your life. And that's what he saw when he got across there. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 said, now listen closely. There is therefore now no what? To those who are where? In Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's what was going on with that camp too. You couldn't, he couldn't condemn them. Because they were camped the way they were supposed to be and in Christ. And Romans chapter 8 keeps going on. And it says there, after it says, there is no condemnation in you, in verse 35, it says, Who then can separate you from the love of God? Can tribulation in your life, can distress, can persecution, can famine, can nakedness, peril, sword, can any of these things separate you from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, though, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things that are to come, or present, height, depth, there is no such thing that can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And usually right now I would ask the worship team to come up as we get ready to close this. But I'm going to ask the servers of the communion to go back as we get ready to close this out. One last thing I want to talk about here. Moses and the children of Israel, as they camped down there in that cross, they had no idea that Balaam and Balak was up on a mountaintop trying to destroy their lives. Trying to ruin their lives. You will not know this side of heaven how many times your enemies have tried to destroy your life. How many times the enemy has tried to bring you down. You'll not know it. But you know what? This They didn't know that they were up there doing that, but God protected them And didn't allow that cursing to happen because they were in Christ Jesus in that formation. And the same thing happens with us. You don't know how many times you've been tried to be thwarted. And something happened. But God is there protecting you. And one day it might get revealed to us. But rest assured that in Christ Jesus there is now no condemnation. 
And nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ. So as we review, we learned today that Balaam displays how easy it is to get called back into your former walk of life before you gave it to Christ. Always be on guard. We learned there's three types of will of God that goes on and that I should try to stay in the directive will and not get over into what He permits me to do on my own because there's always His overriding will. I learned that a change of scenery is not what I need. I need a change of heart most of the time. I need to change who I am and not where I am. When I follow God's directive will for my life, I'm blessed and not cursed. When my life is encamped in its tent the way it's supposed to be, He's got me. And there's therefore no condemnation in my life. And number five, it's because He sees the cross and not me, thank God. And there is now my life hid in Christ. And I pray that today, that this lesson has meant something to you. And that you will take this and that you will use it in your everyday walk of life. And that if there's anything that you need to change, do that. You're a priest to God yourself, it says in Peter. We're able to go to him, John tells us in 1 John, and just confess to him those faults. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of those things. And your tent is pitched in the right direction now. And the cross of Christ is seen in you and and relax. There is therefore now... No condemnation to you. Let's pray. Thank you for your word. What great revelation of hope that it just gave to us. Father, we pray that every individual here and every individual who may hear it later will be encouraged to only follow you and know how much you love them and that their life is hid in your Son. And we thank you for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.